Аркеп Гесплазе, Альзопл Гесплаца Кесох. Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a piece is William Annis. Hello. And uh, up in New Jersey still, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. Okay. And uh, we don't do uh, sort of topical references, but I just like have to mention that uh, we are recording this on the day that President Obama crashed Reddit. Yes. <laughs> oh, really? I don't know about this. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Uh, the On Reddit, there's this Ask Me Anything did. Uh, DJP did one where basically you have you say, OK, Redditors, ask me questions and then you go through and answer them. But when the president of the United States uh, wants people to ask him questions, a lot of people respond. So lots, it's lots perfectly understandable. Yes. Um, probably tens of millions of people went to Reddit at least to look at it. So it's possible that that overloaded it. Um, <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> Somewhere there's uh, a database crying in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another thing is this uh, may be William's last episode for a while. I already have someone lined up for the next episode. And then after that, um, uh, we'll probably get to another person. It depends on how everything gets worked out. But um, I will leave those to be surprises for you guys. Um, Hooray. Surprises, surprises not all. Yes. They will be pleasant surprises. I'll just say that. And so... I was thinking just yesterday how fun it will be to listen to the podcasts and not know what's happening. I mean, like, not know what is <laughs> going to be said. Oh, really? It'll be cool. I mean, I, I don't listen to all of our episodes, but I do sometimes just in case to, to check in case I've said something just monumentally <laughs> stupid. <laughs> Are you going to leave us lots of comments on how you mispronounce things? No, probably not. But it'll be it'll be kind of fun to like listen to the podcast and like, oh, I didn't know that. How interesting! I listen. I've started listening just like from a couple weeks behind, and um, I think I just listened to I think it's sixty four, and I realized that I said I might write a story to uh, help with the that topic. It was the the anaphora. Oh, right. I think. Um, but I never wrote that story. I may. And now that you're a graduate and... student, you never will. <laughs> well, maybe before I start classes, I might find time to do it as a blog post. But uh, we'll see. Um, anyway, that's all irrelevant to today's topic, which is um, kind of a fun one. Uh, so we are talking today about conceptual metaphors. So, um, every language has certain sort of metaphors that are like, well, we all know what metaphor is. It's sort of, um, you can have ad hoc metaphors in literature and in, in even in everyday speech, but a lot of languages have sort of almost like baked in metaphors that end up getting extended into idioms and uh, sort of vocabulary der derivation and such. And I think that's a good way to explain what a conceptual metaphor is. It's sort of you have a certain concept that's defined in, uh, in ways that um, in a certain way in a number, usually in a number of different expressions. So, William, I'm going to kick it to you because you have a bunch of um, examples of all kinds of different uh, metaphors. Sure. Um, 
the we're talking about this topic, it's obviously going to be pretty lexicon heavy. And we kind of made mm-hmm. passing reference to it a little bit back in episode 56 on growing a lexicon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're just going to dig into this. I would probably go so far as to say every language has conceptual metaphors and possibly quite a number of them. They deeply pervade our entire language. Sometimes it's the pervasion, the, it's so pervasive. We don't even notice it until it's brought to our attention. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, it's, one very common conceptual metaphor, for example, is that time is space is mm-hmm. so pervasive that most of us probably can't even think about time without thinking about it in terms of space. And we, we did that even and before that- Einstein came along and said that time is a fourth dimension or whoever it was who <laughs> said that. Yeah. Um, and that's actually sort of, there's some sort of sub metaphors to that because there, there's, um, some languages, so time is space, but some languages will have, say, you know, the future is in front and some will have the future is behind. Sure. Like that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think even though we're talking about language today and always, mm-hmm. they're called cognitive metaphors for a reason. They're, or conceptual metaphors for a reason because they're cognitive as much as they are linguistic. Um, mm-hmm. For example, the same metaphors will appear in art. Think about cartoon illustration conventions, for example. So one one of my favorite conceptual metaphors that appears to be more or less universal is that an angry person is a pressurized container, <laughs> which is just fun to say. Um, but think about cartoon or, or comic illustrations of what an angry person looks like. Their face turns red and they've got steam shooting out of their ears. Um, possibly with the sound of, you know, a train whistle going along. I'm suddenly so, actually thinking of, um, also in, uh, like film and cartoons and like in the monsters, I, I get the image of in the monsters, uh, like grandpa will occasionally have steam shoot out of his ears. Right, right. So the, <laughs> the and that we, everyone understands that as an indication that he's angry. So the, the metaphor is not just linguistic. It presents itself in different yeah. ways. Um, George Lakoff in the 70s and 80s really kicked off the study of this. Um, there's still work going on in it. Um, not surprisingly, translators have really dug into this because it's, 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 they're a mess to translate. We're going to see a bunch today <laughs> where if you translate things literally, it's going to sound, it's either going to make no sense or it's going to be so strange that you stop dead in your tracks. And Bible translators especially. So Sill has published a few papers or has people who've published papers like, how do you translate the metaphors of the Hebrew Old Testament into Zulu? <laughs> um, yeah. Which, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it, which is a really interesting way to sort of really dig into things. Um, mm-hmm. So for the rest of the time, we're talking about these metaphors. They're usually presented sort of as equations, things like happiness is up or time is a limited resource. And if you read the print literature and I have lots of links, um, they're printed in all caps to let you know that this is a metaphor. This is not, you know, something you're literally going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of language, there's a whole bunch of ways in which these conceptual metaphors do behave linguistically. Some things, Mm-hmm. Look like they're universal, like some parts of grammar may be nearly universal. So the conceptual metaphor happiness is up is hugely popular. Um, an angry person is a pressurized container is very popular. Um, mm-hmm. There's a whole lot about the body. It's very somatic. Our bodily responses to certain kinds of experiences generate these metaphors. So certain kinds of strong emotions, um, are talked about in terms of heat, fear in many languages is conceptualized as cold because of vasodilation in our extremities when we're getting ready to run away. Um, and this matches language where anatomical metaphor is common. I'm, I'm going to say it occurs in all human languages. And I think I'm safe saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just as a, a random note, it seems like eating and drinking that is consuming things pop up as source metaphors more often than you might think. And we'll, we'll talk about them more, but uh, English speakers can certainly think about the metaphor that an object of affection is food 
and, you know, legions of grannies threatening to cannibalize their grandchildren. <laughs> like Baba Yaga? Yeah, just gobble you down. I could eat you up. You're, you know, this sort of scrumptious, this sort of food and flavor talk. Yeah. Um, conceptual metaphors can spread sort of like, um, you know, aerial effects. So um, one interesting example in the Middle East, in the ancient um, Middle East, the conceptual metaphor was a nation is a flock or a people mm-hmm. is a flock. And you things, you know, you compared the people to elements of a flock. The person in charge, the king, was the shepherd of that flock. Um, and this occurs all over in the ancient Near East. And it also occurs in the Iliad and the Odyssey because they were produced, or they reached the form we have them today, in the Middle East, not on the Greek, not in Greece itself. But mm-hmm. in classical Greek literature, that metaphor never occurs and stays pretty much out of Greek literature until Greece becomes Christian again, and then, you know, the Old Testament metaphors start reappearing um, in the language and the culture. When you say flock, do you mean like a flock of geese, or do you mean like a shepherd tends his flock, no, right. a, a flock of a sheep? A flock of sheep. Sheep okay. or goats. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so no, this... Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a really common... Thing in in, in the Middle East, the right? Middle East. I the, don't know how often it occurs elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I know in well, biblical I mean, references. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Say that you know that uh, like you know someone is like a flock for his people or whatever like that. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if that's the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's that's exactly that. That's I'm presuming that that sort of thing comes from sort of the biblical ideas where you ha- have descriptions of Jesus is a shepherd for the and and the his followers are sheep that right. sort of derives from this middle eastern tradition exactly exactly but what's it's just in, the point i'm making about this is it's very common in the middle east it appears in homer but then sort of disappears from greek culture until they reimport Middle Eastern culture, namely in the form of Christianity and, and especially the Old Testament. All right. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so even though there are a bunch of things that are pretty universal, some metaphors are pretty universal, there's still an awful lot that's specific to a language. And even within a language, you get sociolects, subculture, images, and even idiolects. So mm-hmm. my, my stepfather is a mechanic, so he's using, used lots of mechanical um, Metaphors, for example, the angry person is a pressurized container occur, occurs in his language when he talks about someone blowing a gasket. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, my father is has worked with dairy cows all of his life, so his language is full of metaphors and idioms relating to cows and a surprising degree, cow manure. Um, huh. Yeah. <laughs> Right, a lot of wisdom apparently. It's a it's, it's a very rich um, rich source <laughs> uh, of metaphor. I'm sure that's right. It's a fertile source. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I, and um, just like words and phrases in a language, they can be subject to reanalysis um, or the expression of them. The the overt expressions of a metaphor can be reanalyzed. So one of my favorite examples is these days, anyone who has an obscure or weird hobby might talk about coming out to their friends about participating in that hobby <laughs> without, without, necessarily, without necessarily any implication that it is quite as terrifying as coming out, you know, for being gay. But that's obviously the source of that, that image. Yeah, that phrase, and yeah. for, mm-hmm. for probably both of you, what does that mean, coming out? I mean, what do you think the source idiom, the source metaphor is? Um, uh, of course, uh, I think it likens well, of, it likens someone you know the state of um, hiding oneself like being in a closet. Right, so right. So the, a short ring. Right. So, but that's that's in fact that's not true. how the phrase started out. Huh. Before, before the gay rights sort of movement started in the seventies and eighties, coming out that phrase referred to debutante culture. You were not Seriously? coming out of yes. You you were coming out into a society and a culture that would accept you and then you would move on to a new part of your life. It was definitely not oh. definitely not making a public declaration. But then after oh, Stonewall, 
the the coming out phrase had to be reanalyzed and coming out of the closet is that. So we have we have a metaphor mm-hmm. switch happening around a particular expression. And that mm-hmm. happens certainly linguistically where things get reanalyzed. So even a metaphor can be reanalyzed. Um, and uh, I think that these metaphors are the best way to embed culture into a language. Yeah. Right? You, don't, you don't need weird words necessarily or weird pronouns. Come up with a new set of conceptual metaphors. That, to me, seems the strongest way to really stamp a culture into a language. I try to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you have something that's that's very common in a culture, you can have it be the source for a whole lot of different metaphors. You can, sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm trying to think of specific examples and I'm blanking, but yeah, well, we'll it does. One mm-hmm. culture that I was working on was kind of like, um, like forest dwellers and they view security and safety as a thick forest. So that gives metaphors such as, you know, if you're exposed, they talk, they talk about trees being, you know, full or being sparse or talking about it's, uh, you know, using, I guess, their, what environment they're comfortable with and what, um, emotions they tie to that environment. Sure. Comes through and shines in ooh, the light. Ooh, 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 So I Rio, and actually I'm developing two descendant languages for that, but um, I just realized I really should get working on this. Like the spirits, quote unquote, that, that were the spirits, they're, they're spirits that live, that speak that language, live in the air. So I should put a whole bunch of wind metaphors in there. Probably. Yeah. Yes. I also have it where the word for tree is the same as the word for spirit because there's that very strong tie to nature and it's there's a whole bunch of metaphors based on that, the almost you know, derivations like you said, coming from that same sort of uh mm-hmm. root. Sure. Um so one of the, the big um metaphors in Kahtai currently is the face is um the container for honor and respect. So all sorts of idioms have things happening to people's faces, which sound very uncomfortable that have to do with, you know, people's respect and social interactions rather than actually their face getting smacked or things. Mm-hmm. Um, many image sources may map to the same target. So when we talk about the conceptual metaphors, we have the source, which is that typically sort of physical thing that we're going to use as a metaphor for the target. So we're going to talk a lot about anger today because people like to study that. And in in all the different languages that I've run across um, in researching this episode, I've seen anger as heat, a wild animal, an opponent, a burden, insanity, a weapon, an illness, and food, which you either consume or spit out. Hmm. And you can have and you can have multiples of these in a given language, um, and they might fight and overlap in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What were we going to say? And then I guess the last point I want to make before we just start getting into talking about these, we're not talking about, as George said earlier, one-off metaphors for the most part. We're talking about a core metaphor that generates an entire collection of expressions. Um, mm. For example, the um, metaphor happiness is up generates things like, in English, jump for joy, be in high spirits, don't be a downer, someone's walking on air. Um, on cloud nine. Yeah. Right, cloud nine, that sort of stuff. Whereas mm. Mandarin has things like Xing, which means high spirit, or that your spirits rise. In, right. In, in Mandarin, it actually, like, getting off the ground is associated with pride, so people do not jump for joy in Mandarin. Oh, okay. Right, because that would be boasting. Uh, and then and then I ran across a funny example from Hungarian. It's funny because it's impossible to translate in English and sound right. Um, it literally means this film threw me up. Like toss me into the air? Right, toss me into the air for meaning it made me happy. The film made me happy. But it obviously threw up in English sounds like something else. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> um, and, and some of these metaphors may only generate a few fixed expressions, whereas some may be very, very productive. Now, is this, it seems like uh-huh. the line for this is, this seems very tied into, I guess, figurative language, but I think, I suppose the other underlying um, process we're talking about is that there is a thread that can be traced that 
you know, feeds all this figurative language that happens almost behind the scenes and the people who come up with the images and the imagery and the similes and all those artistic expressions of it are tapping into this, these uh, nifty metaphors that we're talking about. Right. That's common in certain kinds of artistic language to take these metaphors and run with them further um, than people yeah. do in their normal day-to-day speech. But some of these are not at all figurative. I mean, some are so ubiquitous it's hard even to think about them. And to RV, to, it's almost impossible to even recognize that we're using a metaphor unless someone, you know, picks it up and shakes it in front of your face for a few moments. Yeah, it, it, it becomes, as I said at the beginning, it becomes very much baked into the language so that you yeah. don't realize what you're exactly saying. Right. Um, right. So, so one thing that always surprised me is, and this is apparently a common conceptual metaphor, and that is, and this is really low level, which is states are locations. And by states, I mean mm-hmm. things like being sick or you know, various uh, kinds of stative concepts. So both English and ancient Greek, you can describe yourself as being in danger. Right. And nobody uh, even thinks about that as metaphorical. Right. And it all, that, uh, it strikes me as weird because it's obvious in danger. Why am I in danger? That seems like an idiom, but it's not an idiom. It's, it's an expression of a, of a larger, more systematic use of a conceptual mo- uh, metaphor that a state is a location. Is that also like one is in love? Sure, absolutely. Right. But now how Although about... In, like, uh-huh. Go on. In, in love is a specific, uh, a, a very specific sort of type of love state or something. I don't know. Sorry, never mind. Oh, <laughs> um, falling in love. Is there a... Is there a metaphor behind that? Is there anything? Is, is there? Are there other emotional states that involve you falling or moving physically? Um, I think so. I think it mentions that. Uh, I think I have this. I'll mention this later. Um, where changes of state are, uh, I think it's um, actions like you know falling in love or. Um, I, there are a few of them. I have listed down below, but um, I think that the motion part of that is almost like another layer of metaphor in there. Yeah. Um, I'm in old fashioned theological language. You can sometimes talk about people falling into error. Ah, uh, yes. Falling so, from grace. Yeah, that is what that kind right. of stuff. So, some kind of movement that is thought of as falling. And that there, the idea is it's still motion, you know, a state, uh, a state is a location, is still the generating metaphor, but here you have falling, which is something that happens outside of your control. Okay, I found the one you know that I was what? talking about. Uh, changes are movements. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah like changes are movements. Or... Yeah. Um, I, I think uh-huh. um, an interesting uh, use that you could have for this, uh, sort of outside of proper conlanging is um, say, you know, a lot of people who are conlangers also are interested in writing fantasy about their their invented cultures. You could in order to sort of represent a little bit of the culture and the language and in times when you're representing your conlang as English for purposes of the, the, the uh, story relevant dialogue, you could import those cognitive metaphors and, or just import the the surface results of those metaphors into the English. Right. There was one uh, fantasy series I read about half of before I found it too brutal and stopped. But they had a very, very um, religiously oriented society. And one phrase that got said very often, which was they said that, that you were in the God's eye. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's really interesting conceptual metaphor going on there. And that use and similar kinds of phrase really, you know, conveyed the difference of this culture without distracting you with strange words. Um, I thought it was right. cleverly done, even if I found the book a little too brutal. One thing I want to just mm-hmm. touch on before we get too far away from the in love thing is uh, we were mentioning translation. And I know, if, like we were saying, how if you attempt to translate these um, expressions or metaphors outside of the language they came from, you may get 
varying with the results of accuracy. Like if you try to say in Chinese or Spanish that someone is in love, it might sound like you're saying that they're in this place called love and it wouldn't have that same uh, connotation because the metaphor isn't there for that one. Yeah, right. you can't you can't you can't say in Chinese someone Aitian. That sounds really, really it's, bizarre. Or it, but, it also um, sounds like, like a first level uh, speaker is doing it. Like if someone said in Spanish, you know, el está en amor, that you'd be like, okay, that sounds like amor <laughs> is a place, and he's there. That sounds even worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, and, my um, guess is my guess is Chinese and Spanish both have a you know states are locations metaphor. They, it just is going to be expressed differently than you know preposition in plus. State. Yeah, Spanish, yeah. Actually, Spanish has a verb, uh, enamorar. So él está enamorado. So enamorar is literally mm-hmm. en amor, but they don't right. phrase it as the prepositional phrase. They've yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, yeah. Um, and uh, Chinese actually has an odd one for falling in love. Um, the one version of the term, I think it's uh, one version of the term. It's actually not falling, but going up. Aishan, so right, sort of love up to somebody. Oh, that's neat. Here's another interesting thing with when you with the um, the metaphor or the phrase if someone's head over heels. Mm-hmm. Now you know that obviously he's over, head over heels for that girl or guy or whatever. Um, yeah. It's kind of odd because if you think about it, your head's usually over your heels. But I don't know if that. Well, that's this, that's again that's a lack of control metaphor. Um, a very common. <laughs> A conceptual metaphor across the planet is that love is insanity. Yes, um, yes. Which I'm not going <laughs> to argue with. Um, so I think that's part of that. Again, sort of a combination of something a bit delirious going on, and also a lack of control. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead, George. Uh, I just wanted to say that Aishang. I think Chinese actually has a lot of. Uh, cases where a change of state is moving upward, um, okay, in, as opposed to just moving. So you could even attach like a certain a certain direction to the motion uh, in order to to make to uh, make things a little bit more unique in a certain language. Yeah, I've not seen this discussed, but I have noticed in various languages around the planet that. Entrance into a state is often presented as a manifestation of a plant-like activity, like something comes up out of the ground um, or yes. movement up. It's, it's sort of something becomes apparent to the senses. And um, going to someplace abstract is also often uh, moving up in, in, in Mandarin again. Shangxia, I go up to school, things like that. Okay, okay, yeah. Um. So now, I mean, I just have a list of these metaphors, some from English, some from other ideas that I just was able to collect and find, and I thought they were interesting. Um, it's a pretty small list. Hundreds have been collected just for English. I'm sh- I'm guessing that there are, met- you know, right, it might go up to a thousand or more for an actual natural language, but the study of this is so new um, that, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's lots of corners that haven't been explored yet. Um we mentioned already time is space is very common so much that I have a hard time mm-hmm. thinking about time in any other way than as metaphorically mapped onto space. Um, most languages put the future in front of us and the past behind, but a few do it otherwise. Um, another common uh, conceptual metaphor is time is motion. Um, mm-hmm. And in English, we can say the right time has arrived. And you can say exactly the same thing in Hopi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one that Mike found is pretty common, certainly in English, but I think it occurs elsewhere, which is that argument is war. Yeah. Anything adversarial can, can be attached to war. Even like, you know, in our modern capitalist society, often business is war. Oh, sure. Um, and, and it's interesting. Yeah. I've not really talked about them much, but several papers are easily found online where people talk about the conceptual metaphors discussing the economic collapse we had a few years ago. Oh, really? Right. So the, the Dutch apparently think about things slightly differently from the Chinese or the Americans. Even mm-hmm. just talking about that, the economic collapse, it almost has the economy as a building or a structure. Right. Exactly. You think about it, the economy isn't something physical. 
it could just as well be seen as a change or, um, you know, a maturing. But, in, you know, it's more often than not referred to as a collapse or, you know, something is being built up again or it's like a sure. Here it is. Apparently, a common conceptual metaphor in Chinese is the stock market is ocean water. So you have, lo- so you have metaphors of navigation, but also disastrous tides, bad weather, all sorts of nautical terms get used in, dis- in describing yeah. the stock market. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, one that I just thought was great because it's so pervasive in the language is in Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, uh, language... Uh, spoken in Indochina and large parts of Wisconsin and Minnesota um, is <laughs> a life is a thread so that the verb cut is used in expressions for giving birth, for dying and for killing people. Wow. <clears throat> isn't, that, isn't that also in Greek mythology? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're somewhat familiar with that idea in Greek mythology. It's not really a live metaphor. I mean, if you're being sort of literary, you might use it if you have that background, but it's not a live metaphor in English or any Western language that I'm aware of. Well, in English, you can say yeah, like, his life was cut short. Yeah, and there's a few of them, but it, it's not as pervasive, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're not going to say someone's mm-hmm. throat was cut to say they were born. No, True. no. And and this <laughs> extends and this extends in a really interesting way. I mean, we've talked about South, you know, Asian languages, East Asian languages having measure words or classifiers. So you you just can't say three of something. You can't say this something. You have to say three measure word object or this mm. measure word object. The measure word for life, the noun life in Hmong is the same as the one for string. Oh, really? So the conceptual now, metaphor has extended itself into the semantics of the class system. Now in English, I know for marriage, tying the knot, does that come from two lives being strings coming tied together? I know there is a, a whole ceremony with actual strings in certain religions and spirituality. Yeah, I don't know if that's a live metaphor. I can't think of any other. I mean, it's in, it's, it might probably, be just correlation, but. I think that's probably a uh, fossilized metaphor from when people actually did, like, tie their sleeves together. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, I don't so, know. I'm just trying to think mm-hmm. of other expressions for matrimony that would have anything thread-like or cord-like about them, and I can't offhand, at least not mm-hmm. in my, my variety of English. Well, uh, I just, before they actually had rings, did they actually start that with maybe some string around the finger or something? I don't no, know where those rings came from, no, from no, but that's, no, no, no. That, that's digressing. Yeah, yeah, the, the no. <laughs> we can get, the history of marriage in the Western world is something we can discuss offline. Yeah, um, that's a, that's that's complicated. Yes. Um, but anyway, I just really thought that was interesting how the conceptual metaphor was entrained into the essentially the gender system, the class system of the of the language. Um, I thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and if you create a language like that, this is opportunity for fun. Uh, one thing you haven't uh, mentioned much and. You do have one reference to it, uh, is conceptual metaphors involving body parts. Like you have an example here from Indonesian, happiness is a blossoming liver. How's that for an image? <laughs> which is, which is, which is like floral and body part at the same time. <laughs> right. But, so, yeah. Um, I mean, there are a few like actual anatomical ones. Typically, the body mm-hmm. is conceptualized as something else. Sometimes, you know, things are conceptualized as body parts. That's certainly true. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Indonesian one, happiness is a blossoming liver, is great. Because, first of all, unlike, you know, much of Europe, where the heart is the seat of emotions, not all of Europe, but much of it, um, the liver is a seat of emotions, apparently, for Indonesian. Huh. And yeah. Blossoms and flowers are commonly associated with positive emotions. So Chinese has flowers that bloom in the heart. Um, mm-hmm. But Indonesian, which has located love in the liver or emotions, positive emotions in the liver, has decided that the liver blossoms, which I can't, I have to say, blossoming liver is not a phrase I care much for. I yeah, really so those different um, centers of emotion, and I know that some languages put uh, the center of emotion in the stomach too. Uh, or some diaphragm. of them also, no. yeah. yeah. Uh, a few will actually not put not uh, emotion in the heart, but um, thought into the heart, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is that really the same as cognitive metaphors? Or is that another 
um, kind of cultural metaphor? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, they are so often entrained into conceptual metaphors that I'm prepared to talk about them that way. Um, yeah. There's actually, it's, it's something of a debate. I mean, Lakoff, I think, some of his subsequent research, I think uh, some Hungarian dude, tries to claim that most or all of metaphor is in fact somatic. It's about embodiment. It's everything is related to our experience lived in a body and the sensations we experience being in a body. And and mm-hmm. some people are not quite prepared to say that. Um, mm-hmm. So and I don't I don't think we're the people to solve that problem. Um, before we get too far from the, uh, you mentioned the case or not case system, but the the na- the noun classes uh, mm-hmm. with Chinese and measure word. Um, I think I remember in uh, Dierbal or Dierbal in the uh, Australia they yep. have um, noun classes. Yeah, and one of those noun classes puts women, water, fire, violence, and exceptional and exceptional animals together in one class. Yeah. So I don't know if that's likening. The fire and violence together, and I don't know if the women and water have all yeah. that together. So, Lakoff wrote an entire giant book about this very issue called Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, where he explores all of these issues um, in tremendous and sometimes daunting detail. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a very long time since I've read that book, so I'm, I'm not prepared to say anything more about this specific yeah, um that is that is an interesting idea, though, that noun classes could start incorporating some cognitive metaphors. Um, I don't know to what extent that would happen. Well, it, um, might, be, it might be quite pervasive given enough time. Yeah. Um, are we ready to move on just to keep going with our little list of fun things? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So we have one that's kind of neat in English, that darkness is a solid... So we'll talk about how, you know, the darkness was palpable, it was impenetrable, it pressed in on us, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, In English, there's a a whole bunch of um, metaphors that conceptualize surprising things as possessions. For example, beliefs are possessions. I hold certain beliefs. He clings to beliefs. He shares beliefs. Don't give up your beliefs. Um, Mm -hmm. Obligations our possessions. It's out of my hands now. Um, or, you know, I distributed duties. I gave him, gave him responsibility. Um, that sort of stuff. Um, properties are possessions. Um, I think very interesting. She has a nice sense of humor. Um, uh, he has a strong sense of self-worth, stuff like that. Again, a lot of this stuff is stuff that you would not actually think of as metaphorical when you say it. He lost his tolerance for alcohol. He, he, he gave his son a sense of self-worth. We don't, we don't think about those as metaphorical. I think of them no. more as just figurative language and being, um, you know, I guess I don't think about it under this umbrella of, um, conceptual metaphors, but it's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, you can almost feel the darkness pressing upon you. So it just is more like colorful language. Right, but it's, you mm-hmm. know, different cultures may conceptualize that differently. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of those. They're sort of interesting. Um, getting back to anatomy, I found a cute one in Basque, um, which is that a small quantity is an eye. <laughs> so that the phrase yes. big eye actually means biggish. And you would say he gave me a, an eye full of wine actually means he, he gave me a little wine. <laughs> Sounds like someone just poured some. Man, wine. the image, the image for Eiffel of wine is very disturbing <laughs> for us. But for Basques, it just means a little bit, and they know because a small quantity is not, and they know, and it's not going to be surprising to them. Um, yeah. So one that I thought was kind of cute from Turkish is based on the metaphor that a body is a container. Now that is cross linguistically mm-hmm. very common. Yeah. Our bodies contain things all the time. Um, but the Turks just say they're going to use the word for jar for all sorts of things. So you would say someone who is smart is a jar of knowledge. Someone who is secretive is a jar of secrets. Um, somebody who's having problems is a jar of troubles. Um, I love that. I, I added the phrase jar of nerves, but I don't know if that meant that someone was um, irritated or irritating. 
<laughs> because in one of the cognitive metaphors of Turkish is that nerve is irritation. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, we have this sort of in English, right? He gets on my nerves, that sort of stuff. Or you right. know, he's got a nerve, right? So, I mean, that's a fairly common uh, one, but it seems to be a little bit more active in Turkish. Um, another really common, really, really common conceptual metaphor is life is a journey. Mm-hmm. And sort of a sub-metaphor of that that the Greeks run with is that weather is the degree of hardship. Um, so that you can, mm-hmm. uh, you want to insult someone, you can just wish them bad weather. And you're not asking for <laughs> rain down, you're, want, you're, you're wishing bad luck, bad fortune um, to them. And these journey metaphors, again, are very, very common. And certainly English, we even talk about, you know, um, a stormy life and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another one from English, which is pretty common, is purposes are destinations. Um, the phrase, we aren't there yet, to describe, you know, mm-hmm. completing some tasks is, is really a good one. Um, in Chinese and in other cultures, an idea is a building. Um, but these, <laughs> these are, these are um, translations from Chinese. You can say that the frame is loose. The framework is loose. Just talk about an idea that's a little problematic. The foundation of an argument. We construct yeah. theories in English and Chinese. So that's a pretty common one. Um, I've already talked about the stock market and the blooming liver. Uh, <laughs> in Indonesian, anger is a dangerous animal. It becomes wild and ferocious and attacks things. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> some of these you're like, why do we have this in English? That's a, I mean, that's an obvious, it seems obvious once it's brought to your attention that that would be a good metaphor for that. I think in English sometimes we have an angry person as a dangerous animal, but that's, right. I don't right. know if that really uh, goes to the level of conceptual metaphor. It's often sort of one offs. Yeah. That yeah. well, that guy is like a a, a raging tiger. Sure. Well, I don't know. You can talk about emotion in the sense of um, like the anger consumed him. I'm not sure if that's the yeah. same because you could also say like depression consumed. I don't know. That sounds a little weird. But anger, the anger was consuming him, or you know something similar. I, I can think of uh, uh, depression consuming someone, but I don't think of that as. Relating to an animal, I think of that as, um, I don't know, the, the emotion being sort of some sort of like something that surrounds the person. Yeah. I don't know. It might, you know, yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes to know where, where these things are coming from and it's so hard to disentangle, um, mm-hmm. one offs from, from more systematic kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the, the interesting one talking about some anger consuming them. There is, again, it's this eating and consumption metaphors are very common and they pop up in surprising ways. But even uh-huh. if there's not an animal, even if there's not an animal doing it. Um, another really common one is that emotion is a fluid in a container. Mm-hmm. Um, most commonly in English, we hear about emotions that overflow. Now, well, I was also yeah. thinking if you say like an emotion drains someone of their strength. I don't know if that's really like a fluid because the strength is almost not necessarily an emotion, but um, right. But vitality as a you know vitality as a fluid, I think, mm-hmm. is interesting. That that might. I can't think of any more examples in English, but I would guess that, that there might be some floating around if I had more time to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mike added a bunch, and this is great because these are the the scariest of the metaphors. Um, that uh-huh. he, he actually, I think this is the Hungarian dude's book, The Metaphor and Culture. These are event structure, event structure metaphors. Oh, there were lots of them. I just put a few here. Yeah. And, and, but these are so fundamental that it's hard for us to even realize that a metaphor is going on. States are locations. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about they are in love. Changes mm-hmm. in state are movement. He went crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, action is a self propelled motion. We've taken the first step. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not actually stepping. We're talking about other things. Um, purposes or destinations. We've talked about that, right? He finally reached his goals. Um, and difficulties are impediments or obstacles, right? Let's get around this problem. And that's so fundamental to us that it's hard to realize that it's a metaphor. But why should? Yeah, that's. My, why should my inability to remember how, you know, most of my Chinese characters be conceptualized as something in the, in my way? And yet that's 
how we do so very naturally. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, that's the the that's sort of the uh Mike, what are you trying to do? You already have the link in there. Do I? I don't know. I was trying to I couldn't find where I put the link and I know there was a link to the ebook, so I was trying to find that I found uh Well, the, I don't know, you just put it in there. It's it's yeah, fine. I just put it anyway, there without the one that I meant to put. It wasn't the one that I found originally. So Anyway, yeah. getting back into the discussion, yeah, those those ones that that uh that are listed there um seem like the hardest ones to get into to realize oh i need to think about what this is i think i'm i've been thinking this for for a while now and i want to uh sort of modify and reiterate something i've said before when you are translating texts it's very important that as you're going sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, you think very carefully about how your language is going to express this stuff as opposed to English. And these cognitive metaphors are an important tool to think about so that you don't, you, you can go further and further from relaxing English and you don't say yeah. someone is in love. Someone has reached his goals. You reach and find some other metaphor to express that not in every case in some cases right. there's likely to be coincidences but just be aware of the fact that these are these these can be metaphorical yeah of, of all um, of the kinds of accidental relaxes and accidental smuggling of our native language into our conlangs these have got to be the most subtle that yeah. we've ever talked I about think i think i I think I did one. I've mentioned this on the show before, but I remember um, when I saw the, the 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 phrase in the text that I'd written, actually, that I was translating to make peace, and I realized that that's sort of a, a metaphorical, sort of an idiomatic thing to say, and I decided to switch it to, to promise peace or something like that. Sure, but what if we decide that peace is a luxurious garden? Then you might plant peace. You might hoe peace. Yeah. Or if you yeah. think about peace, you as might water peace. There's something. Yeah. Peace is something that's like normally free flowing, like a like a bird. You might release peace, or you know, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Free. Um, if mm-hmm. yes, it might be a kind of river. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could do. Um, yeah, I I know that mine was sort of actually a literal thing, but you yeah. you could put all sorts of metaphors onto it. Um, peace is an emotion. I don't know what you would do exactly with that, but yeah, well that then you have to figure out you all have of to, your emotional. You have to do a second metaphors. metaphor, right? You have to right. do a second metaphor for that, and that um, certainly happens, right? You you get metaphors that interact with other metaphors or generate other metaphors. Mm-hmm. Um. As is probably obvious, these conceptual metaphors can work their way into literary language. They can be used a lot in language play in funny ways. Mm-hmm. Like we talked a while ago about how states are possessions. Um, mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of the internet meme for a while of talking about how something was full of win or full of lose. <laughs> full of full fail. Of win. Full of fail, right? That sort of stuff. Um, states are possessions. Um, uh, two years ago, a friend of mine or a couple that I know, um, they were expecting a child. Um, and I was talking with the wife and I used a very, very old fashioned word. I said that she couldn't, she should be careful on the stairs because she's gravid, which is a tremendously old fashioned word for pregnant. She said, yes, I have the gravidities. (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) (laughs) which I love, right? So she's turned gravid an adjective into a possession that she had. With the gravidities, so she turned it into a noun, which I, a plural noun, no less, which I loved. So I, I, I want to know something. I've heard uh, occasionally preg- pregnant women, uh, sort of jokingly refer to their baby as a parasite, and uh, I wonder if any language has that as actually as a productive conceptual metaphor. Yes, imagine a future culture in which their only art is the alien movies. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a very modern conception of pregnancy. It's so modern. Yeah, it is. It, it is very modern, I guess. But it's, it's, 
it's it 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 it's uh it sounds like an interesting metaphor, but it obviously hasn't taken off so much because it's still just a joke. Yeah, lots of people who love babies might object strenuously to that, to that particular one. So, uh, one thing I want to mention in terms of coming up with your own conceptual metaphors is uh, the thing that really turned me on to these in conlanging was a talk John Quijada gave at the first language creation conference years ago, and I saw the talk, and I've included a link to the talk again. And his PowerPoint slides, and he has a page, he's got about, what, four or five? Five slides about conceptual metaphors. He talks a whole bunch of cognitive stuff in general, but the conceptual metaphor is just uh, five slides. And on his last page, he has a list of ones that he thought would be fun to play with. My favorite is, love is diffusing a bomb. (laughs) LAUGHTER Love is not the bomb. Love is diffusing, diffusing a, bomb. a bomb. That's, that's a funny. Um, the family is a jungle. Uh, life is music. Life is war. Emotions are zoo animals, right? He just sort of came up with ones, and you know, you might as well do that. It, it has to make sense, especially if you're conworlding, right? The culture has to have the thing that you're making a metaphor about. Yeah, uh-huh. you, you need you need to have the something. You have to have it culturally relevant. So. Uh, a, a culture that is pre-modern will not have the mechanical metaphors that, that William was right. talking about earlier. Right. That is, right. A hyper-intelligent um, race of space squid, you know, are probably not going to have the same conceptual metaphors about that have to do with the body. Oh, yeah. There, there's a big if if you have aliens with with weird physiology, you have you have a lot of uh, room to work with. <laughs> yes, if you if you have the time. I mean, uh, there are certain subjects that we've discussed on this show that scare me a little. Um, an African yeah. reference is fairly scary, a recent one we did. But this subject absolutely terrifies me because there are literally hundreds already of these conceptual metaphors just for English, which have been investigated by linguists of various sorts. I'm sure there are thousands. It's an awful lot to think about. It's already hard enough to come up with a lexicon with more than a thousand words. Now I have to come up with a thousand or more conceptual metaphors. Right, it's a it's a little daunting. So how I do you? It's go ahead, George. Well, what were you going to ask? First? I guess I was just going to move on to the next thing. Is how on earth do you work these into your lexicon? How do you manage this as a language inventor? I think my question would my idea would be is the same way that you do the lexicon, and for me, a lot of the the lexicon building comes from doing translations. Mm-hmm. And maybe as you're doing translation, you can hit upon a particular metaphor and then riff on that for a little bit. But, um, you know, it don't just, I don't, I think it's not something you sit down and do all at once. Oh, good. No, 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 not all at once. I'm not, no. I mean, <laughs> even, even not something that you want to sit there and spend several weeks on trying to, to get all your, metaphors out i think it's something that you do as you go along and occasionally uh you know sometimes you do it as you need to as you feel you need to put in some sort of metaphor and then occasionally maybe you hit one that you really want to play around with and you riff on that and make several different expressions out of it yeah um in terms of keeping track of things, I actually now have a section in or near my lexicon explaining general semantic principles, just sort of across the board. But that will include a bunch of cognitive metaphors as I come up with them um, with references. Because mm-hmm. think about what we said earlier. You know, if we, we have some goal in mind and at work, say, and then our boss might say, but we're not there yet. What dictionary yeah. is going to explain to you what that means? Yeah. If your conceptual metaphor is way out there, you should probably define it as as though it were an idiom. There are a small number of dictionaries intended for second language learners that actually are starting to do this in natural languages now. Because um, there is actual research indicating that it makes it easier for students to learn vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's presented well, if as you... part of a coherent um, metaphorical system. And then well, Yes. <laughs> What I usually do for mine is um, I a lot of times I end up thinking about if I were going to jur- make a journal entry or describe 
you know, what someone's day or some event or translate a quotation or try to use this. I just try to think about um, the speakers of the language and what they might liken it to in an art, in a figurative manner. My my languages tend not to be, or they tend to be just from one group of people from a certain area. So it's not necessarily like some desert spe- de- desert dwellers might have the same references as say people who live in a very lush, you know, fully vegetated an area full of vegetation and foliage. So um, I try to keep, you know, in my mind where my speakers are coming from and what would be familiar to them. And they would be most likely to use those kind of images and those kind of metaphors in their speech. Sure. Well, yeah, like, um, like Williams sort of made up example of pieces of garden that all only works. If you have a culture that is a tradition of, of agriculture and gardening. So, and conflict. (laughs) Yes. And and if you're, if you're, you're, you know, imagining, you know, fantasy land fairies who live in harmony, then they're not going to need this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's a boring con culture, though. <laughs> oh no! It provides an opportunity for them to get an ugly surprise. Then you've got tension. Then you got <laughs> um, I was going to say, at the very least, you you might want to start making a list of cognitive metaphors that you're using in your language, if only to help you generate your dictionary. You don't have to publish them necessarily. Um, some of them might be pretty obvious because, as we've said, uh, some of these conceptual metaphors appear to be practically universal. Um, and, oh, and, and, and like I said, I have been starting to, you know, include these things as though they were idioms, you know, I mean, they're, they are kind of idioms. They're kind of generating idioms in the sense that the literal translation doesn't necessarily make sense um, for yeah. what uh, is actually being expressed. I, I was actually going to say that um, they're not, they're not tr- you know, the same as an idiom, but it's um, having conceptual metaphors, uh, I think, you know, thinking about conceptual metaphors will allow you, it will give you a more systematic approach to generating sort of idiomatic ways of, you know, yeah idiomatic ways of expressing thoughts. You know, once you have some sort of systematic way of... It's sort of weird to think that metaphor is systematic, but it kind of is in this this particular instance. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the metaphor itself may not be... The metaphor itself is just a fact, right? Right. Uh, But once you've got it, it can be used to generate all sorts of metaphors, and that can be fairly systematic or not, right? As I said, some metaphors are very productive and some are less so. So one thing I'm planning, have not fully developed for Kachzai, is um, there are a number of common conceptual metaphors that imagine things as journeys. Life, in particular, Mm -hmm. is a journey. And I've decided, just at random, um, because it interests me, most journeys happen on rivers, um, oh, so okay. lots of vocabulary and idioms related to rivers is going to be involved. So in some of these conceptual metaphors. So hard times could be like uh, river rapids or sure or uh, well, or industrious or rivers difficult. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, difficult. Uh, sort of sort of difficult or crazy times could be rapids and sure. You know, you could also have calm waters and all sorts of things. Yep. One thing that um. I kind of try to do with this is it well one another area having conceptual metaphors would help with is it can really save you making up a lot of new words if you just have um, you know if you have the metaphors in place you can basically kind of double dip with your words like um, mm-hmm. I was coming up with wor- words that pertain to a job and I thought of basically a company as a body so the boss is the head and you could talk about the company consuming or you know eat, needing to eat and sleep as for the work. And, uh, you know, instead of coming up with new words for all these, if you say, you know, it, I, I, can't, I use it as slang because it's, you know, there's a proper word, in the, but the slang they call the boss, you know, the head, which isn't that far out. But yeah. um, it can help you either in generating, you know, generating new phrases or expressions using what you already have in your language. Yeah, I mean, this really does float slightly above. I mean, it's lexical. It's definitely, we're talking about a lexical issue, but it's sort of higher level <laughs> lexical behavior. It's not just coming up with a word. Yeah. This is another way to really think about how those words are used. 
Mm-hmm. And to add richness to those words, and one is things like polysemy, having additional meanings. But, you know, entraining particular words into a conceptual metaphor is another way to add richness to that word. Um, instead of having to come up with yet another new word, maybe you can use something you've already got to express what you need. Uh, I think uh, sometimes you you can you can see... At least, you know, in a lot of, well, I'm sure it happens in the real world, but I see it a lot, even, uh, more strongly expressed in, like, certain types of fiction of a government is a body and, like, the, the head of state is a head and someone who's, like, uh, someone who ha- has a lot of power underneath that person is like their right hand, things like that. And attacks can be conceptualized as disease, right? There's a, a rot or, <laughs> or corruption or a disease. And people even use the disease language, which can be a little uh, nasty. I'm um, certainly in the red scare in America. Communism was thought of as a kind of virus or contagion. <laughs> a lot attacks on a nation can be a disease that's, that somehow leads me to the, 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 the Chiang Kai-shek quote where he said the, uh, the Japanese are a disease of the skin and the communists are a disease of the heart. Right? Sure. I mean, very common, right? The, 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 the nation is, is a body is very common. Very, very common metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, that's Chiang all Kai-shek I have on my list. Like I said, that, I, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, um, what was I going to say? I have a whole bunch of links. Many of the papers are only partially about conceptual metaphors specifically. Um, and I tried to pull in a few languages. I didn't talk much about the food metaphors in either Persian or Iraqi Arabic, but those are kind of nice ones. Um, and, and, you know, uh, there's a really interesting paper, but we haven't talked about, um, about new developing Mandarin conceptual metaphors about what the Internet is. Wow. So some of the metaphors related to um, books, which is not terribly surprising. Oh, I know one. A, a forum thread is a building. Right. Um, so buildings, books, and public transportation are all uh, common source metaphors um, for the Internet yeah. in Mandarin Chinese. So, again, just stuff to look at to give you ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to... Why don't we move on to feedback? Because we've talked this topic to death. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm I'm sure you guys won't object to that. Nope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as Mike pipes in from his wind tunnel. Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't know if listeners will will uh, uh, hear that in the final. We'll see. Um, it, I got this. Kind of hilarious, uh, email. It says, uh, Konrangori Gambare, uh, forgive my poor Japanese, um, by Strawmanicide, uh, came in a while ago, but I just now got to, uh, to reading it. I was meant, I meant to read it last recording, but I, I missed it. And it says, a staunch camp, a staunch champion of elegance, this podcast is. Conlangery is its name. Being awesome is its game. <laughs> this show combines great informative talk on linguistics and language construction with whimsical banter and approachable tone. Uh, An approachable tone, actually. Uh, they can even make the effort to devote time to feedback, both praise and criticism. The outtakes at the end are... Also, never fail to a smile on my face. Sick. Uh, I once thought conlanging was a lot easier and have since abandoned most of my previous sketches for extreme nubosity. And with my freshman year of university looming, I doubt I will have much time for conlanging in the near future, especially as a physics major. But... You guys reliably give me my weekly conlanging fix, and for that I thank you. By giving some great terminology and new ways of thinking of your talks have even made my studies of Japanese easier. 
Keep up the great work, guys. Love, Jacob. And I'm not going to try to pronounce that name. Yes, his name's uh, Jacob. And then he gave what's supposed to be an IPA transcription of the name, but it's it's fairly appalling. It's like a click <laughs> uvular ejective and some pharyngeals and something that might be a vowel and that weird Swedish H thing. And yeah, I'm not going to try yeah, to say it. I I I I'm not sure what he's he's going for there. Anyway, I'm glad that this person thinks we're awesome. That's good. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. This review was helpful, and <laughs> that's that, that's hilarious. Okay. Um. So that's it for the show. Uh. Now, William, since this may be the last time we have you on. For, for a while. You better make this a good one. So, what are your final words of wisdom? Cultivate your dictionary. That's all. Okay. <laughs> and Mike? Um, well, cultivate your dictionary is a very good one. Um, I'd say when you're coming up with these uh, con- conceptual metaphors and when you're working to you know, develop how your language is going... Try to put yourself in the shoes of your spe- of the users of this language. Um, put yourself you... in their shoes. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, put yourself in their shoes because if you try to translate a language from an outside perspective, just like it, uh, you, just like with a, with a na- native language, a natural language, uh, you run the risk of it sounding like a non-native speaker. And if you do put yourself in their shoes and try to see the world through their um, through their point of view, it will give you a much richer and a much more uh, organic feel to your language. I, ha- I, am, I am starting to get a bunch of ideas for conceptual metaphors for various con cultures of mine, so this has been a very good discussion. So, with that, I'm going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. Yeah, I could say all sorts of uh, very insensitive things now, so I won't. All right, that's what mute's for. The topic itself is kind of straightforward in a weird way. I just have to make sure I don't let the moment pass, like if I have something to say, and I'll unmute. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It's the Konrangori Gambare. The what? Do you want an egg roll with that? What? <laughs> Seriously? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I have to go to US Cellular because the, the touch screen on my f- phone is broken. Anyway. I once had to walk home from quite close to where you live, George, because th- there was so much snow that the buses stopped running. Mm. But, but that's the only time that that has ever happened in my entire time in Madison, that there was so much snow that the buses stopped running. It's not so much that they stopped running as they couldn't move anymore. <laughs>